All right, so we uh, are going to jump into chapter 11. We're in kind of an interesting uh, section. Chapter 10 was another one of those breaks in the action. If you go back and you look at it, you've, you've had between the sixth and the seventh seal, and now between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, a break in the action. It's, it's the pattern that God uses. And so we're at that point between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. We've not yet heard the blast of the seventh trumpet. We will. Um, but there's this pause here, and it's chapter 10 and chapter 11, and then near the end of chapter 11, we'll hear the trumpet blast, and that's going to set in action the seven bowl judgments, which we'll look at next semester when we come back in January. But by way of just review of last week, we saw the 70 weeks, the 77s, 490 years uh, that were revealed to Daniel by the, the angel. And it's a 490-year prophetic timeline that gets revealed. And he is shown basically the beginning and the end, the decree to rebuild the temple from that point to the cutting off of the anointed one, Jesus Christ, his execution. There's going to be 483 years, which leaves seven years missing. And we believe the seven years is the tribulation time period. There's a gap, right? 483 years, Jesus Christ is crucified, he rises from the dead, he ascends back up into heaven, and the church age starts. That's the gap. That's the gap between the 483rd year and the beginning of the last seven years, the period of tribulation. So we're living in the gap. We also saw the mighty angel, at least John saw the mighty angel and described the mighty angel to us, and he had the seven thunders. Um, we don't know what the seven thunders were. John heard it. John distinctly heard a message within the seven thunders. And when he went to write it down, God said, don't keep it sealed. So he heard it, he got it, but we didn't get it disseminated to us. Why? We don't know. But it does show that God has aspects of his word, aspects of his plan that are still not revealed to you and I. And then we saw the little scroll. That's a, it literally means diminutive scroll. It's not the scroll that God was holding in his hand and that the lamb took from his hand. This is a different scroll. It's a small scroll, and John is commanded to eat the scroll. Kind of an odd deal. And it's bitter and sweet. It's sweet to the taste because it's the word of God, and it more than likely contains the fulfillment of all God's prophetic plans for not only the church but the people of Israel. But it's bitter because there's still judgments to come. And as a matter of fact, John's told, you got work to do. Hope you enjoy the scroll. Get back to work. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. John's given additional insights into what's going to take place. Now, you got to keep in mind as we go through the tribulation, everything is compacting towards the end. We've got more action in a shorter period of time. And so we've got the seven seals that span the entire seven years all the way through the midway point. We've got the seven um, judgments, the seven trumpet judgments that are in the second half of that three, you know, the three and a half years of the second half of the tribulation. And it's all getting compressed and more and more Judgment is happening in a shorter period of time, and that's what we're going to see happen as we get into it next semester. Those seven bowl judgments are going to come one right after the other, and it's going to get intense. So this passage, like every passage we've looked at, is controversial. Let's just face it. This book is controversial. 
And so this particular passage, chapter 11, has some elements about it that are controversial that we're going to have to look at. We can't escape them. And it always goes back to, are we going to take it figuratively or literally? Are these allegorical comments by John? Are they just representative or are they literal visions and scenes that he's seeing that represent something yet to come? There's a lot of different... uh, beliefs about this within the evangelical camp. We're not all on the same page. And as far as I'm concerned, that's perfectly fine. Um, As long as we all believe the same thing in terms of how do you get saved? That's the real important point. But there are debates about this. And as I've done from the very beginning, we're going to present the view that this church holds. And it's not just this church. I don't want you to think that, you know, a group of elders at this church sat down in a room and go, what do we think about the end times? And we have our own little specific belief system. This is a very popular, very uh, common belief system. It's not the only one. As a matter of fact, uh, you're going to get an email from me um, during the holidays inviting you to come to an event that we're going to have probably on Thursday night, sometime during the holiday, probably be down in the den, where we're going to just talk about all the different views. Um, I've had enough guys contact me and say, yeah, but I heard this or I believe this and I've had the platform, I've got the mic, I've presented one view, but if you want to talk about all the views, we're going to do that. It's going to be a discussion, so don't come to debate. Uh, We're just going to talk. We're brothers, we love each other, and we can agree to disagree. But if you're interested in that, that's what we're going to do. So I'll let you know when that's going to happen, and I'm not going to show up. Okay. (laughs) What we're going to do is we're going to take this passage, chapter 11 of Revelation, as literally as we possibly can. I see no reason not to. Um, We've done it for the last 11 weeks, and we're going to do it this week. Warren Wearsby says this, if we spiritualize this passage and apply any of it to the church, we will be in serious trouble. The reason he says that is that, you know, from our vantage point, from our viewpoint, when you start to spiritualize any of this, you run into a problem, okay, which do you spiritualize, which do you not spiritualize? Which is allegorical, which is literal? And you, who gets to decide? And so from my vantage point, it makes much more sense to approach it one way or the other, but not both. So we're going to approach it from a literal standpoint, as crazy as it may seem to our minds, our human minds. We're going to be as literal as possible. So let's just jump into it. Chapter 11, verse 1, then I, John, was given a measuring rod like a staff that literally is like a cane rod. It grows uh, throughout that region. It looks like cane. It's hollow. It grows to very high heights. It's cut up and made into measuring rods. We don't know how long this thing was, but that's what it is. It's used to measure things. So he says, Rise, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. This tells us that he's going to measure something that exists. There's a temple there. There's something he's going to measure. It's not an allegorical temple. It's a literal temple. And it says, for it, the court outside the temple is given over to the nations. That is almost always a reference to the Gentiles. And they will trample the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months. So what's going on here? He's told to measure. He's given this cane, this rod, and said, go measure the temple. We know when John wrote this, he wrote it late in um, 
the first century, and it was more than likely written after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So there is no temple. There's no temple in Jerusalem. He's not measuring that one, the Herodic temple that was destroyed by the Romans. He's measuring a temple that will be in existence during the tribulation. And we'll talk about that in a second. So he says, measure the temple of God. The word there for temple is a very specific word. It refers to the inner part of the temple, the holy of holies and the most holy place, the, the most sacred part of the temple. The temple, at least this, uh, Solomon's temple, was on a site that covered about 36 acres. It was a pretty big place, a lot of courtyards. But the, the main worship area where the, alt, the brazen altar and the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant was a fairly small area. And it was small because at least in the Holy of Holies, only one guy went in there one time a year, and that's the high priest. It didn't, didn't need a lot of room. So this is what he's told to measure, and that's important. So I've given you in your notes this little sketch, this diagram of what the, the temple that Solomon built looks like, or looked like, we think. And there's another little schematic down in the right-hand corner. So he's told to measure the holy place and the Holy of Holies, and really this whole area down in the right-hand corner. If you look at the kind of the golden portion up there, that's what this is. This is kind of looking down on it. That tall structure is the holy place, and it contains the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. It's a very, very sacred place. And again, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies one time a year to present atonement on behalf of the people on the Day of Atonement. The court of the Gentiles is this outer area where Gentiles could go, and it's the only place they could go. If they went any further than that, they could be put to death because they, were, they would desecrate the temple. Um, you remember the story in uh, Paul's uh, ministry where he was accused of bringing a Gentile into the area beyond the court of the Gentiles, and they wanted to put him to death. See, it was very important to the Jews that they keep the inner part of the temple cleansed and holy and pure. And so here's John being told to go measure this one particular area. And it, it says, really, a, it's a picture of ownership. God is measuring what belongs to him. And we see this picture of measurement in the scriptures on a regular occasion, Zechariah chapter two, it says, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? He said, to measure Jerusalem. He's going to measure Jerusalem. This is prior to the fall of Jerusalem. And why is he measuring it? Because God is bringing judgment on Jerusalem. In a, in a sense, he's measuring the spiritual health of his people. And it's not going to turn out well. So when God measures, it's either for good or for bad. In Zechariah 2, it's for bad. We see in Ezekiel chapter 40, behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a hand breadth in length. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed and the height, one reed. And it goes on and talks about the measuring of the temple in Ezekiel chapter 40. Once again, for judgment. But what we're looking at in chapter 11, I don't believe has to do with judgment. God is telling John to go measure the temple, this particular part of the temple, because he's got good news. He's told to measure the temple, the altar, and the people who worship there. 
Now, I don't know if, about you, but that, that would make me uncomfortable to think that God would measure me. And the truth is, God does measure me. God does look at me, and he has expectations of me, and he sees how I live my life and whether I live Christ-like. God does measure us. The good news is that I'm not punished for my lack of measuring up. Why? Because I have been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. But so you got to keep in mind, in this particular case, John is measuring the temple and the people of Israel who are living during the tribulation who are not atoned by the blood of Jesus Christ. They're Jews, but they have not accepted Christ. They are living during the tribulation because they have not accepted Christ. They were not taken when the church was taken. So he says, measure the temple, measure the altar and all who worship there. And there again, you've got this, what's he talking about? That very specific part of the temple grounds where the Holy of Holies is in all these areas. Now look at this, the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the court of the priests where they could go, but nobody else could go. The court of the Israelites just outside of there where the males could go. And I'm glad I'm just teaching this to males because this always hacks off women. Why couldn't we go in there? I don't know. Ask God someday. Um, only the men could go into this area and the women had their own courtyard, but they were all Jews. No Gentile could go into this area. What's he told to measure this area? Where? In the temple that's existing, existing during the tribulation. So there's a temple. Why is there a temple? Because the Antichrist has allowed them to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount beginning at the very start of the tribulation. You remember he brokers a peace agreement with the Jews and the nations, particularly the Muslim nations, to allow them to build the temple on the mount where the Dome of the Rock sits right now, the second most important shrine in the Islamic world. How does he pull that off? I don't know. It's why he ends up being such an incredible diplomat. The Antichrist brokers the deal that allows them to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount, and they begin to offer sacrifices again. And things are wonderful. And what you got to remember is that the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. Jesus predicted it. It was destroyed by the Romans. And from that point forward, there was no place for the Jews to sacrifice and therefore receive atonement. So when he allows them to rebuild that temple, can you imagine what that meant to them that for the first time they were able to go in and offer sacrifices and receive atonement for their sins? It was huge. But we know, and we're going to study it in greater detail when we come back, that the midway point, he changes his mind and he stops all sacrifice and he desecrates the temple but he's told, John's told to measure this area and measure all those who worship there. Who worships in that area? Jews. This is not the church. This is Jews. He's talking about the temple of the Jews. He's talking about the worship of the Jews, the Jews living during the tribulation. See, God is concerned about his people. He's concerned about the Jewish people during the tribulation. And he's measuring them. He's measuring their spiritual condition. And he's told, he tells John, don't measure the Gentiles, measure my people. 
Why? Because God's got something he wants to do. God's not done yet. See, in that area that he's told to measure is the brazen altar where all sacrifices were made. It was there that the, the bull was sacrificed that the high priest would then take into the Holy of Holies and anoint the Ark of the Covenant to atone for all the sins of the people of Israel once a year on the Day of Atonement. So he's telling him, John, go measure this area because guess what? I'm not done yet. I'm not done with my people. And you go back to Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So here's the Jews living during the tribulation and they are for the first three and a half years of the tribulation are able to offer sacrifice and they're doing it. And the inference seems to be that many, many Jews are coming to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice because they haven't been able to do it for generations. It'd be like if here in America, it was Christmas was banned and we can't celebrate Christmas and we can't worship in our churches. And then suddenly somebody in power says, okay, now you can. We would be all over that. It would be incredible. We would, we would be joyful. That's what's happening here. The Jews are able to worship again in their temple to their God and receive atonement. See, God's measuring his people for good, not evil, because he's got something greater than those sacrifices they're offering. He's already offered his son, and he wants them to know his son. Now, keep in mind, we've still got the 144,000 Jews who've been redeemed. We've got the great multitude that's either still on the earth. Many of them are still on the earth. Many have gone to be with the Lord because of persecution and martyrdom. But we have the gospel being spread, and these Jews who are worshiping in the temple are going to come to a saving faith in Christ. Why? Because God's not done. God's got a plan. God's working that plan to perfection. So it goes on and says, do not measure the court outside the temple. That's where the Gentiles are. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So don't measure that. His concern is not for them at this moment in chapter 11. He's focusing on the Jews. So don't measure the court of the Gentiles. Don't measure those unbelievers. There's something in store for them. Don't worry. The gospel's going to go to them as well, as we'll see in a second. But they're not included in John's measuring of the temple. Measure those who worship in this particular part of the temple. And that is critical to understanding this passage as far as I'm concerned. So he says, leave out that court because they, the Gentiles, will trample the holy city for 42 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. What period of time is it talking about? The second half of the tribulation because of what happens. First three and a half years, things are going great. Rebuilt the temple, offering sacrifices. Antichrist seems to be our friend and then midway through that, he turns on them. And we have the great tribulation, which is the second half of the seven years. And I know all of this stuff is kind of blown around in your brain and, and all colliding at times. But it's important that we understand the timeline here and what's given to us by John. 
Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, which we looked at last week. Here's what it says. And he, the Antichrist, will make a strong covenant with many, the Jews, for one week, seven years. And for half of the week, half of those seven years, three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So what they've been able to do for the first half of the tribulation, offer sacrifice in the temple, gets brought to a screeching halt by the Antichrist. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. For three and a half years, the second half of the tribulation, he turns on the people of Israel. And we'll see that in really great detail when we come back in January. He turns on them. Why? Because they're the people of God. And he despises them, just like he despises me and you. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his objective. So the Antichrist, we're told, is going to desecrate that temple. The, what temple? The temple that John's measuring. The temple that exists during this period of time. He's going to desecrate it. Daniel eleven thirty one. Forces from him, the Antichrist, shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. And they shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. They're going to erect in the temple, we're told in Daniel, something that desecrates the temple. What could desecrate the temple of God? An idol. Something other than God. And that's what's going to happen. Jesus himself talked about this in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, same language from Daniel, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. What's the holy place? That area that John's been told to measure. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And this is a passage that often gets confused with the rapture because it goes on and says, man, if you're in Jerusalem, get out of town. Just flee. If you're preg just pray you're not pregnant. Pray it's not the Sabbath because you can't travel on the Sabbath. But whatever you have to do, get out of Jerusalem. Get out of Judea. Because the abomination of desolation sets off the second half of the tribulation, which is going to be incredibly difficult. We see in Revelation chapter 13, if the false prophet performs great signs, who's the false prophet? We're going to get to know him better next week. But one of the interesting things in Revelation is that you have Satan, who's referred to as the dragon, Antichrist, which is always referred to as the beast, and then you have the false prophet. Basically, what you have is a false trinity. Satan being God, the false God, Antichrist being the false Christ, and the false prophet being like the spirit of God. You have a false trinity. See, God, Satan is the deceiver. He wants to be God and he replicates or tries to replicate what God does. And he does, does so by having this kind of triumvirate, himself as God, Antichrist as the Christ, the Savior, and then the false prophet. Well, Revelation says the false prophet performs great signs just like the Holy Spirit does, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, the Antichrist, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast, the Antichrist, that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And we'll find out more about that next January. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. He he makes an image of Antichrist, and he's got power to bring it to life. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds weird, right? That sounds like fantasy world stuff. DC Comics. But this is the word of God. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Where does he put this image? In the temple. He desecrates, as Jesus says, the temple, the holy place. And see, guys, there are those who will say, well, this all happened in the past. This was when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years earlier, and he did, and he set up an idol of Zeus in the temple, and he sacrificed pigs to that idol, and he forced the priests to eat the pigs, the meat of the pigs. And so they'll say, well, this has already happened. This is just John looking back. That makes no sense whatsoever. Why are we looking back? Why is Jesus in chapter 24 of Matthew talking about something that happened in the past when he's warning his disciples about the future? See, Old Testament prophecy almost always has the now, near, and not yet aspect to it, future. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Yes, Antiochus Epiphanes did desecrate the temple thousands of years ago. But guess what? It's going to be repeated by the Antichrist in the tribulation in a much greater way, on a much greater scale. So then in chapter, verse 3 of chapter 11, it's like we've had this, okay, temple measuring what the heck's going on here. And then verse 3 it says, and I will grant authority to, to my two witnesses. Where did that come from? Who are these two guys? And there's a lot of debate about this. But we're, again, we're just going to take this as literally as we can. Who are these two witnesses? It says, they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So you got two witnesses. Who are they? They're going to prophesy. We know what they do, and we know for how long, 1,260 days, but who are these guys? Well, the word there is martus in the Greek, and it means witness. Now, you may recognize that that looks a lot like martyr. It's where we get the word martyr. But it literally means someone who witnesses. Those who, after his example have proved the strength and genuineness of their faith in Christ by undergoing a violent death. See, those who preach Christ, who emulate Christ, often die for Christ, like most of the apostles did. And they become martyrs. But the word literally just means witness, preacher, somebody who's telling truth. And they're going to do this for 1,260 days or three and a half years, when the second half of the tribulation. So when the Antichrist desecrates the temple, suddenly these two guys show up. Now keep in mind, what do the Jews now not, what are they now not able to do? Sacrifice in the temple. They could for three and a half years, now it's done. They can't anymore. Temple's desecrated, no more sacrifice, no more atonement, and then these two guys show up. Timing's important. Through them, God's going to declare more judgment to come. Now, I know of no prophet in the Old Testament who was popular. None of them got invited to parties. Nobody wanted to be a prophet. No one prayed to God, make my son a prophet. They would rather their sons be janitors than a prophet because prophets were despised, hated, and most of them killed. 
Why? Because they brought the truth of God. These two guys are going to experience the same thing. They're going to speak to the people living during this three and a half years, second half of the tribulation, and they're going to say this punishment that you're experiencing is from God and you are guilty before God. You must repent. What does every prophet who's ever prophesied say? Repent, return, stop what you're doing, come back to God. That's what these guys are going to do. And they're wearing sackcloth a sign of mourning, not for them, but as a sign to the people they're talking to, you better go into mourning because of what's coming down. See, we've still, still got seven bold judgments that are going to come. And it says, these two are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, what, what is that? What does that even mean? See, we, we automatically want to jump to, well, who are they? Who are these two guys? What, what's their names? Well, we're not given their names. But we always want to know who they are. And the text kind of tells us, gives us an idea of who they are. And we don't need to really speculate. And there's been a lot of speculation. There are those over the centuries who say it's Israel in the church. No, it's Israel in the word of God. They're symbolic. Then there are others who say, no, no, it's Moses and Elijah. They've come back. And there's a lot of good proof for these things. Some say, no, 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 it's not Moses. It's Enoch and Elijah. What does the text tell us? None of those. None of those. Now, I'm not going to fall on my sword over it, but it doesn't tell me it's Israel in the church, Israel in the word of God, Moses and Elijah, Enoch and Elijah. It doesn't tell us. It just says they're two witnesses. So I'm going to leave them unnamed and unknown because that's how God's given them to us. But what I do know is what? They are called the two lampstands and the two olive trees. Why? Where does that come from? Zechariah chapter 4. Now, this is not, in my mind, this is not John who would have been familiar with the Old Testament. It's not John looking back into Zechariah and just pulling, pulling uh, descriptions out of Zechariah and Daniel. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John. These are visions given to him by God. It's not him sitting down, you know, well, What's a good way to describe these two guys? Zechariah. I'm going to use Zechariah. No, it's God using imagery that he's already used before, centuries earlier, speaking to John, and he's tying together the loose ends of prophecy, the mystery of prophecy. Look at Zechariah chapter 4. It says, And an angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. Dangerous thing to do. Wake a man out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see a lampstand of all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. Why is he so stinking specific? Why can't he say, I mean, he just woke up. I see a lamp. No, no, no. He sees a lampstand with a bowl with seven lips or spouts pouring into seven lamps. And then he's going to go on to say, and there are two olive trees by it. He's very specific what he sees. Two olive trees, one on the right and one on the left. Here's the picture. You got a lamp stand with a bowl, a large bowl, and you've got seven lips pouring into seven lamps. And on either side are olive trees, which produce what? Olives, which produce olive oil, which drips into the bowl, which drips into the spouts, which drips into the lamps, which keeps the lamp burning how long? Forever. It's like a Rube Goldberg machine. 
It just, it's perpetual. Perpetual light, perpetual glory. That's the picture. Then the angel who talked to me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? No, I don't know what these are. So he said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who is Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel was a political leader, a Jew, who was allowed to go back and lead the people to rebuild the temple, the walls, the city of Jerusalem. Okay? He's a political leader, and he's going to be accompanied by the high priest, a guy named Joshua. So look what happens. He says... Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. He's going to rebuild the temple. This is a past event that's already happened. But he goes on. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, the temple. His hand shall also complete it. He will rebuild it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. That will be the proof. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. He's going to measure, build, and complete the temple. Then he goes on and says, these seven, these seven spouts and these seven lamps are the eyes of the Lord, which range the whole earth. Then I said to him, yeah, but what are the, what are the two olive trees on the right and the left? And a second time, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said, do you not know what these are? No, I still don't know. Listen to what he says. These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So all the way back in Zechariah, we have this description of these two anointed ones who are two trees. And now we fast forward all the way to the book of Revelation and what do we have? Two witnesses described as two olive trees. And we have, again, a now, not yet. Zerubbabel and the high priest, we're going to go back, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, we'll go back and rebuild the temple. That's the early part of that fulfillment. But there's a not yet part, which is what we're looking at. They would rebuild the post-exilic temple. But see, there's the, the not yet fulfilled aspect of this. There's two more witnesses to come, two more anointed ones to come, and they come in the second half of the tribulation. What are their names? Don't have a clue, and it's not important. I think they're just nobodies. Because every prophet who ever prophesied was, guess what? A nobody until he got called. These men are just men. I don't think it's Enoch. I don't think it's Moses. I think it's two men that God chooses with a message and their message, what they do, they're lamps because they bring light in the darkness. They bring healing because of the oil, healing for sickness, light to eliminate darkness. But guess what? Their message is refused. See, they're given great powers and the passage tells us that. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain could fall. Now, won't that make them popular? Hey, guys, we come from God. There's more judgment to come. Guess what? No rain. How long? Three and a half years. Get over it. How far? I don't know. Just in Jerusalem? Doesn't tell us. Whole world? I don't know. But they have great power. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood. That's going to make them popular, too, because they've already seen things falling out of the sky, turning a third of the sea to blood, killing all the animals, the sea creatures. They've seen fresh water and springs of water turned to blood. Now these guys are going to turn water to blood. 
Hey, can't you do another trick? No, we're going to do that trick. And they're going to strike the earth with plagues. Now you can see why the people living on the earth aren't going to like these two guys. And it says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, the Antichrist, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. They end up dead. Three and a half years into this thing, after they've prophesied, when they have finished, which means God's going to protect them until it's time for them to come home. They're going to finish their job. And Satan and the Antichrist and the Gentiles, no one can touch them until, until God's ready. Then and only then. But he does kill them. And what happens? Their bodies are left out in the open. They're not buried. They're not given a proper funeral. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Now, one of the interesting things about this, guys, is that we live in the 21st century, and we have things available to us now that John didn't know about. We have satellite TV. We have... Um, the internet, we have iPhones, we have all this technology that allows us to see things happening all around the world. And it's interesting to think that when this happens, when these men who have been bringing plagues and blood and all kinds of agony to the world are put to death, it will be seen, I believe, worldwide. And people will rejoice. They'll be happy. It says in verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. They're basically going to turn their deaths into a party. It'll be dead prophets day. Rejoice. It's like Christmas. It's a weird form of Christmas. They're dead. Let's rejoice. Let's give each other presents. But look what happens in verse 11. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Yeah. It's probably televised. It's probably visible. They come to life. And then look what happens. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So they're going to watch. The people on earth are going to watch these two dead guys come to life and ascend into heaven and go to be with the Lord. It's interesting, and if I were God, that would be a great time to let them speak because they got everybody's attention and they've got C-SPAN and they've got every, all the networks are watching them. But no, God says, come on home. You've said everything you need to say. Your work is done here. You've spoken, you've warned, you've called to repentance. And it says, at that very hour, a great earthquake came and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And it says, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That's an interesting phrase, guys, because 7,000 people die. Why 7,000? Don't know. Really don't know. Is, it, it, I don't know what that means. Why 7,000? The word there for people is actually a word of those who have names. It seems to be a reference to important people. Does God strike down the leadership of Antichrist's political party? I don't know. But 7,000 people die. It gets the attention. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. And every time in Revelation you see that phrase, it's about repentance. It's about salvation. It's always a sign of repentance. Fear God and give him glory, says Revelation 14, 7. Because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs and the water. So something's going to happen to these people when they see these witnesses rise 
We see in Revelation 16, the opposite. They were scorched by fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. To give God glory is to acknowledge who he is. It's repentance. Your God, I'm not. Your God, Antichrist is not. And many will do so. And I think that reference there to the rest is really a reference to the Jews, that the Jews are gonna come to faith during that time. Well, look at verse 15. We finally get to the, the blowing of the seventh trumpet, but it's not gonna be what you expect. It's not what we've seen six times in a row. The seventh angel blows his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven, and they say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's interesting that the terminology there is in the past tense. It's happened. He is now ruling and reigning. He is king. He, it's as good as done is essentially what it's saying. Even though we're not done to, with the book, right? We're at the halfway point. It's, it's interesting to me that God is giving John at the midway point of the book this picture of how it's going to turn out to encourage him. Because, yes, he's got more judgments to reveal. And God's saying, but listen, good news is here. Because with the blow of the seventh trumpet, it's the end. The end is right around the corner. And it says, he is king right now. Satan is as good as finished. And it says in heaven, the 24 elders fall on their faces and worship God. And they say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your, your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, that's one aspect, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. See, it's near the end, and they're already worshiping in heaven because the trumpet is blown, and they know the end is right around the corner. Jesus Christ is coming back. What's important to understand is this, this reference here. It says in verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened. Now, what did we just say? John measured the temple and he measured this part that included what? The Holy of Holies that only one man could go into one time a year to offer atonement for the sins of the people. No one could go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. And yet it says here, John sees a vision of the temple in heaven open. No veil, no barrier, he can see in and see the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. He's reminded of the mercy of God, no longer off limits, and it'll be totally accessible to God's people. See, God is giving him a vision of what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes back to rule and reign. It's about the mercy seat. It's about what God is going to offer, even those who are going through all of this horrible things happening on this earth. He is redeeming and he will redeem his own, his people, as we'll see when we come back. So once a year in the day of atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to make atonement. And that's what they can't do anymore. But see, God's gonna do it because he's already done it. How do we know that? Look at Hebrews 9, verses 24 through 28. 
Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not a human built temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly like the high priest did, entering into the holy place, holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. See, Jesus died just once. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, now catch this, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What's this talking about? It's talking about the second coming of Christ. And there will be those eagerly waiting for him. Not us. We're gone. Now, you may not believe in the rapture of the church, and that's perfectly fine. I believe in the rapture of the church, and I could be perfectly wrong. But I believe we're gone. So who's this talking about? Who are eagerly waiting for him? Those who have come to faith during the tribulation, including Jews. And God's going to appear through his son and he's going to establish his kingdom. But it's interesting that it ends, the chapter ends with flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake and heavy hail. Because in the midst of God's mercy, there still is judgment to come. Eight bowls are going to be poured out on the earth on all unbelievers. But there's mercy coming. There's joy coming. Jesus Christ is coming. So we'll look at the seven bowls of judgments when we come back. But what I want to do this morning to wrap this up is we're going to sing. And I know you, you know, like, oh, I knew I shouldn't have come this morning. <laughs> we're going to sing. And I've asked Austin to come and he's going to lead us in some songs. And here's the reason I want to do this is because we just finished 11 weeks of really, really intense Bible study on a very difficult book. The book starts out with this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to forget that that's really what this is all about. He's coming again. And in a matter of weeks, we're going to be celebrating his first coming. I am so glad Jesus Christ came, but I'm even more glad he's coming again. Because if he's only got one coming, I have no hope and neither do you, but he's coming again, guys. And so I want us to stand and we're going to sing and then you're going to have a very brief discussion time when you're done. But stand up and let's, let's just praise God as we prepare for the holidays. Have at it. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Yes, he is. Oh, come to the altar. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Leave behind. 
Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today, there's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes, a new life was born. Jesus is calling. Yes, he is. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Sing hallelujah. Christ is risen. Bow down before him, for he is Lord of all. Sing hallelujah, Christ is risen. We come before him this morning, oh come to the altar. Oh come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning, it's time to sing your song again, whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes, bless the Lord. And bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like, sing like never before. And oh my soul, I worship Your holy name. Your you're slow to anger your name is great and your heart is kind and for all your goodness I will keep on singing ten thousand reasons for my heart to you believe that here we go bless the Lord and bless the Lord oh my soul 
worship His holy name. We sing, we sing like never before. And oh, my soul, I worship Your holy name. And on that day, and on that day when my strength is fading the end draws near and my time has come still my soul will sing your praise unending we're gonna sing that again and on that day there's hope amen and on that day when my strength is fading, the end draws near, and my time has come. Still, my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand years and then forever. And bless the Lord. And bless the Lord. My soul, oh my soul, worship his holy name. We sing like never, we sing like never before. And oh my soul, I worship your holy name. And I will worship your holy name. And I will worship your holy name. We celebrate the gospel this morning. Let's cast our minds. I cast my mind. To Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me, and I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. body bound in drenched in tears they laid him down in Joseph's tomb the entrance by heavy stone Messiah still and all of
God, we sing this. Oh, praise the name. guys, um, you've got one question I want you to discuss, and that's, what has this 11 weeks meant to you? How has God spoken to you? Not about me, it's about what has God said to you. And then I'd like you to end your time in prayer before you leave. Praying for one another as we move into the holidays that this would be the richest, most blessed holiday season you've ever had because of what you've heard about your God. Father, I thank you for these men. Thank you for the ability to worship you through song. Thank you for Austin and the talents that you've given him. Father, I pray that we would go into the holiday not dreading it, not thinking about all the things we're going to have to do, the money we're going to have to spend, the dinners we have to go to, the parties we have to go to that we don't want to go to, that, Father, we would focus on you and your son, Jesus Christ, who died, rose again, and is coming again. Father, this world needs Christ. And this world needs men who believe in Christ and who will live out Christ every day of their lives. And I pray that would be us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.